0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. It's currently estimated that one in four young people are at risk of serious mental illness, a statistic that is sadly on the rise. The issues of body image, coping with stress, school or study problems, often identified as the key forces of concern. Unfortunately, those at higher levels of risk of mental health problems are often reluctant to seek help for fear of being judged. In response, clinical psychologists Dr. Sarah Edelman and Louise Ramond are trying to help stem this tide of rising statistics and have authored Good Thinking, a teenager's guide to managing stress and emotions using CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, an evidence-based guide to changing how teenagers think to improve the way they feel. Sarah Edelman is the best-selling author of Change Your Thinking, and Louise Ramond was for many years the sage professional voice behind the words of the Dolly Doctor column in that bastion of teen advice, Dolly Magazine. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Louise. Hi, James. Hi, James. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me. Do you remember how tough it was being a teenager? Um,
1: yes, absolutely, and in fact, I think this book was partly born from my own angst um, as a teenager. Uh, for me, it was a time of um, a lot of turmoil, a lot of uh, anger and frustration. Feeling very, um, very different compared to other kids. And my parents were both migrants. They, my mum didn't speak English at all. My dad did, but you know, my parents seemed old, and they they were very old-fashioned in their views. And I. Remember remember this this period being a really unhappy time but also thinking that I was the only one feeling that way um, so for me it was it, it was a time of a lot of unhappiness and frustration
0: it, it seems to be very easy to feel lonely even when you're surrounded by you know 200 classmates as a teenager Louise was that did you experience any of that
2: I think I did too um you know I think when you're going through that you think, you're unique and no one else can relate to these experiences and I think you're also introspecting a lot so you're thinking more about your thinking and you're thinking about what other people might be thinking so I think the self-consciousness was a big factor for me so I remember having pimples and, and thinking that that was terrible and everyone else would be staring at it and would notice it when in reality as we look back it probably wasn't such a big deal.
0: Every generation seems to, the suggestion is always that um, things are getting harder for teenagers. Do you think that's true at the moment?
1: Um, The the research evidence actually suggests that it is. I mean, I know there is sort of this view of this pandemic of anxiety, um, and yet uh, if we look generally um, at mainstream community, it's not actually clear that anxiety is substantially on the rise. But when we look at the data specifically um, measuring Uh, changes in in mental health amongst teenagers there is evidence that there is uh, growing anxiety and and depression. There was a recent study by um, Mission Australia in collaboration with the Black Dog Institute that actually found that in within five years since 2012 there has been a substantial and significant increase in mental health conditions, mental illness amongst teenagers. So there's definitely something going on there.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly the study that I was referencing in the mm. in the opening, which was also suggesting that um, the risk of mental health issues is greater in Indigenous populations and also for girls specifically. Mm. Is there a reason that girls are more exposed to this, Louise?
2: I'm not sure if they've been able to put their finger on exactly what it may be, but there are a number of different factors and one may be that girls tend to put more emphasis on relational issues, so those peer interactions, and and when they're having difficulties with those, then that may impact more greatly on their mental health. Also issues such as body image and and perfectionism seem to be on the rise. It may also be sometimes that the mental health issues that we're looking at may manifest slightly differently in, in females to males, so with boys, there's probably a higher rates of things like irritability or anger, which may not necessarily be historically associated with depression or anxiety. So it may be some different rates because of the different symptomatology that people are presenting as well.
0: Are we getting better, though, at diagnosing, or is it more that we are setting a society up to better recognise these issues?
1: I think there's much more recognition that um, uh, teenagers are very vulnerable, and and it is a key a peak period where mental health problems actually arise. I remember when I went to school, we didn't even have a school counsellor. There was very little interest or recognition that this is a, a very vulnerable time for teenagers. I think in the last twenty years or so, there's been a much greater awareness of mental health problems amongst teenagers, and also a recognition that the the sort of problems that start manifesting early in life, if not addressed, may become ongoing problems throughout the adult life as well. So if resources can be spent in recognising and diagnosing and treating some of those mental health problems or potential uh, mental disorders, we may be able to stop that long-term trajectory.
0: Naturally, with any sort of school life, there is a level of Anxiousness. There is a level of stress because we do need stress and anxiety within reason to get us through our days.
2: And those kinds of emotions are a normal and natural part of being a human being. So it is about understanding that we all feel anxious or down or angry at times. But I guess in terms of when we're looking at the importance of interventions and of taking actions, it's about Is that causing you distress and is it impacting on your life and and your functioning and getting in the way of you being able to do what you're wanting to do so I tend to to take the angle that we all have our different things and it may be on a continuum so there may be someone with mild anxiety or more significant anxiety but even so whatever it is if it's causing you distress and standing the way of you doing the things you'd like to be doing then taking action and, and developing some strategies can always be helpful.
0: Well, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, is a, is a core fundamental... Oh, so they're the same thing. It's it's, it's a core part of um, addressing psychological issues and psychological matters of concern. Cognitive being the mind, what we think and what we believe, and behaviour being our actions upon that. What, what drove the two of you to come together and put this book together for teens?
1: Can, can I just explain? First of all, I just want to respond to... Uh,
0: sure. Have I got that desperately wrong? No, no. Uh,
1: look, Cognitive behaviour Therapy is all about... About managing emotions, and you can do it in in different ways. One way of man- managing emotions involves directly dealing with cognitions, and that's thoughts and beliefs, and helping people to recognise and change those thoughts and beliefs. And the other approach is directly through behaviours. So that's why it's called cognitive behavioural therapy, because you're actually by getting people to change some of their behaviours, they actually get cognitive change, so they're thinking differently and feeling differently. I should so- have simply started with, <laughs> yeah. what is CBT? I yeah, yeah. so, so just wanted to explain that because people think it's all about, uh, um, and, and, and certainly if you can change people's behaviours, their quality of life often will improve as well, but it's it's a therapy that uses behaviours as a way of also changing cog- cognitions, thoughts and emotions. Um, so, and the same part of your question was, uh, what drove us to um, uh, to do, this. do you want? Do you want to answer this, or are you happy for me? Yeah, okay. Um, well, so, do you have conflicting. Beliefs? No, no, no. I just don't we'll want. I don't want to hold the <laughs> hold the microphone. Um, so Louise and I were both uh, both met when we were working at University of Technology Sydney, um, and this was a, a unit that was under the um, under the directorship of Dr. Anthony Kidman, um, who was a clinical psychologist that um, uh, used to actually raise a lot of money for research and. Initially, when we started working together, we were working in psycho-oncology, and so our focus was on um, dealing with psychological issues for people with uh, with cancer. And after a while, there was a change in in focus of the unit, and we started focusing on um, teenagers. We started recognizing this is a really major major problem. This was, um, you know, quite a few years ago now. So we were. We, we uh, we were, this was an this was a time when, um, the- problems amongst teenagers were sort of coming to the fore and we started recognizing that cognitive behavior therapy is a really good tool for helping teenagers as well Mm -hmm. so our unit started um, uh, developing a program for teenagers which was mainly run by Louise and I was involved in the development of the program and we started working together on coming up with ways of helping teenagers deal with some of the issues that they're that they're coping with.
0: changes did you see uh, encompassing these students?
2: Well I think that one of the main things that we were doing were running groups for students in year 10 to 12 who are dealing with anxiety and stress and depression so again teaching them these strategies the cognitive behavioural therapy strategies was helping them to first of all recognise that it's not the situations themselves that are making them feel these ways but mostly about what they're saying to themselves so That's the key part that we would teach them, is saying, okay, you're feeling upset, try and identify what might be triggering it. Then what are you saying to yourself? What are the thoughts or what are the the thinking behind it that's causing you to feel upset? And how is it affecting your behaviour? And then helping them to identify particular patterns of unhelpful thinking. So there are certain, in cognitive behaviour therapy, there are certain types of thinking errors, as we call them, that are very common common for for a lot of people, and we teach the teenagers to identify those. So they might be things like catastrophizing, which sounds like what if, what if it's gonna be a disaster, often behind anxiety, particularly teenagers mind reading. I think I know what other people are thinking, and they're thinking this about me. So teaching them to identify those unhelpful patterns or thinking errors, and then to challenge them and look at things in a more helpful way, a more balanced way, and also looking at their behaviours. So things like for someone with anxiety looking at are you avoiding situations and is that therefore perpetuating the anxiety and trying to get them to challenge themselves and take small steps to address the situations that, that they're avoiding?
0: On that point then, tell me a little bit more about labelling.
1: Okay, so sometimes we have experiences where we do something that um, that feels dumb or you know, it feels like a mistake and we feel, you know, we feel silly. And when we label, we make a gross overgeneralization about ourselves or sometimes about other people, uh, without sort of seeing the shades of grey. So, um, f- for example, a student might do a presentation to the class and, um, and not do as well as they, they would like. And so they may label themselves as, I'm a failure, I'm a dork, I'm an idiot. That's sort of making gross generalizations, which are ultimately, you know, un- unrealistic and unreasonable, but it feels true at the time. So getting, getting students to actually recognize that that's what they're doing and, and then to perhaps come back with more, um, balanced views, such as okay, I didn't do as brilliantly as I would have liked, but it wasn't a total disaster. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a failure. I'm, you know, I'm just a person who's, you know, doing my best. So, getting getting kids to realise that they're they're doing that and then challenging that is helpful.
0: Is it as simple as changing your language?
1: It's not just about language. It's about the way we conceptualise. And this this is something that comes up a lot. I sometimes so for example, we sometimes talk about the tyranny of the shoulds. And the tyranny of the shoulds is, you know, that we have rigid rules about how, about our expectations and about how things should be. So for example, I should always get good marks, I should have lots of friends, I should always look good, are common shoulds that you will see amongst teenagers. And sometimes people will say, oh I don't say should, I never use should in my vocabulary, I always use the word could rather than should. Um, but in fact, their, their thinking may still be, may, may still be quite rigid. So I always remind people it's not just the words you use, it's the way you conceptualize. And one of the goals of cognitive behaviour therapy is to teach people to develop flexibility in their thinking. And cognitive flexibility is one of the most useful, psychologically useful uh, skills that we can learn. And that's recognising that most things are not black and white. Most things are not absolute. Most things fall into that grey area. And if you can actually see that, you can protect yourself from a lot of angst and distress and depression and frustration.
0: Uh, This seems to be something that we should essentially be teaching at our schools and teaching from a very young age because the applications for this are are enormous, even in adults. And, I mean, Sarah, your book, Change Your Thinking, really addresses this issue in the workplace.
1: Yeah, and this is not... Thinking that is unhelpful is not limited to teenagers. It's Mm. very much... um, It's throughout the population. I catch myself doing it at at Mm. times myself. So, you know, we all do it at times. Mm. But learning... Uh, Getting more aware of the way that we think and learning to catch ourselves at times when we are thinking in an unhelpful way is a really useful technique um, and it's useful for adults and it's relevant to adults, it's relevant to kids, but it's particularly important for kids because there is so much angst and so much stress during that stage of life. And secondly, if they can learn those skills early, they can then protect themselves uh, further down the track from continuing and repeating those patterns
2: as adults.
0: Louise, did you see a lot of this during your time with Dolly Magazine?
2: Absolutely. So we would the questions that came in. So I was writing the Dolly Doctor Love and Life column, and the questions that we we would receive were often related to those key elements of adolescence. So things like identity. So who am I? Where do I fit in? What's do I still belong in this peer group? the pressures, so pressures from peers, pressures to do well at school, pressures from family, pressures from the media, so feeling like I need to perform in a certain way or present myself in a certain way to be acceptable or to be a success. So even in the Dolly um, questions and responses that I used and the 180 word responses that I I would write, I would often utilise cognitive behaviour therapy strategies. So, for example, if a girl was saying, I feel like all, you know, my old friends hate me and they're not, they don't like me anymore and they think that I'm different. So we would say, do you think it's possible that you could be mind reading, for example? Do you have any evidence that they're thinking that way? What you could do is perhaps talk to them about it or talk about your concerns or find any evidence that they don't think that. So um, I would often use these strategies in those responses to the teenagers' questions.
1: I was just going to add that I think mind reading is one of the most common um, reasoning errors or examples of faulty thinking that we see in teenagers. Teenagers are very self-conscious and they're constantly reading into situations and they totally uh, overblow and exaggerate their perceived, the, the, the perception that other people are thinking about me and, and and making all sorts of negative evaluations about me. And that comes up over and over again. I just saw someone recently who, uh, quite a shy girl, who went to a party and, um, you know, took off her shoes and was dancing and having a wonderful time. But she, the, apparently there's, glass had broken earlier, and she stepped on some glass and, and, and bled a lot um, on the night. And she said, oh, everyone was thinking I was an idiot. I made such a fool of myself. They all thought I was an idiot. And when we actually explored that and mm-hmm. said, you know, who exactly thought was, you know, what was the behavior that you observed? You know, who thought it was anyone standing, pointing, laughing at you, telling you're an idiot? And, and when she actually looked at it, no, everyone was helpful. People were coming up and saying, are you OK? Mm-hmm. And people were very friendly. But uh, but that sort of almost instinctive response of everyone thinks badly of me is particularly common amongst teenagers, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. It
0: seems to be something very difficult to overcome as a teen that it's not all about you. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and that is part of, the, part of the way of thinking, isn't it? Because you're developing different thinking skills in adolescence anyway, and part of that is that introspection. So thinking about my own thinking and then thinking that because I'm... My own thinking is so important, everyone else must be thinking that way too. So I distinctly remember it again with my my skin as a a teenager, thinking because I can notice these pimples and they feel so profound to me, then everyone else must be noticing it. And if I go to a party or go to a social gathering, that might be what everyone is focusing on. They would be thinking these things about me, when, in actual fact everyone's just doing their own thing. (laughs) And that's one of the things we try and teach particularly with teenagers saying, in that situation, would you be... If someone else was in that situation, would you be focusing on their skin? Or you might notice it, but then what would happen? you get caught up in conversations or the music or what have you.
1: Yeah. I also just want to say that I think one of the most useful things in CBT is the aha moment that comes when when people realise that these are just thoughts we tend to perceive situations and just assume that the way we perceive things is reality and the actual process of first of all noticing that whatever it is I'm perceiving is actually just stuff that is going on in my mind, and uh, you know thoughts can be true, they can be completely wrong, they can have a grain of truth, they can be uh, very biased, and actually knowing that these are just thoughts and there are other ways of perceiving the situation, I think, is really really helpful. Um, so it's just not an automatic reaction that whatever I'm thinking must. Must be hundred percent true.
0: Yeah, that that old adage that perception is reality. How does social media fit into all of this? I mean, I'm sure this is a question you regularly get because you know we all grew up, we didn't have it. Um, I'm thankful for not having it at the time, and certainly during my university years. Um, but but how does that affect teens nowadays?
2: Well, I think it has both pros and cons. I guess the main con that I see is this unfair comparison. So one of the un- One of the thinking areas we often see, particularly in teenagers, is comparing yourself to others and thinking that others are better than me in some way or have something that I want. And recent research shows that, particularly, Instagram for teenagers can have a huge detrimental effect on mental health because all you're seeing is an image and you're comparing yourself to that image. And as we know, probably for ourselves and amongst teenagers, often what we put on social media represents our highlights reel. So when we're doing something exciting or when we're looking dressed up to go somewhere, we look really good, that's what we're posting. But if you're a teenager at home looking at your (laughs) a 1,000 so-called friends on social media, most of whom you don't know in person then often what you're doing is going through those images and saying, look how good she looks or look at that exciting life that they have or look how many friends they have or look at the fact that they seem to be going to parties every weekend and often comparing themselves negatively to that, why, can't, why aren't I doing that? So I think in some ways just that that bias and that distortion of comparing yourself to something that's almost a um, a manufactured or carefully thought out representation of a life can be pretty detrimental.
0: Yeah, not understanding that people are putting their best self forward. Yeah,
2: and and, and that's again something in terms of challenging the thinking, that would be something that we would get teenagers to think about. So how likely is it that these people are going to be putting an image of themselves when they're stressed out doing their their homework or when they've had a fight with their parents or when they're having a down day? They're not going to be posting that, they're posting the things that are, are kind of fun or significant to them. On the other hand, in some ways, if there's an aspect of social media that can help with connectedness. So it may be, um, for example, if you've had a, a conversation with a friend and you've told them you're going through a hard time, then they might send you something on Messenger, just going checking in to see how you are, and that can feel like someone's supporting you, um, or cares about you. So that could have a positive impact in for some for some teenagers. But again, it's just having that balance and also understanding that the difference between Friendships or relationships in the in the on the online and in the social media world compared to real world, real level um, friendships. Because I know teenagers myself, and the big, the biggest thing is how many likes do I get on my posts and how many follow, followers do I have? And I must be popular and okay if I can get all these followers and all these likes on my posts. Whereas we say talk about you know real life, real depth friendships and real depth connections. That are important. Yeah,
0: that, that need to actually connect, which also sets you up for a greater life as well. Which is that need for a community, and um, and certainly coming back to the point that um, girls, they seem to be more at risk of being affected by um, mental illness in some way. Um, the author Clementine Ford has written about the need for a girl gang the fact that you've got to find that core group to really rally around you within reason to get you through those t- teen years. Do you, do you agree with
1: that? I agree with it, absolutely. I think, I mean, whether you call it a gang or just a group of friends or, or, or connections, yeah, f- I think friendships are important for both genders, but for girls in particular, relationships are particularly important and um, in terms of soothing emotions and dealing with distressing situations uh, relationships not just with family but also with with friends is is particularly important. Just coming back to what you're talking about social media before as well I think um, the advent of social media has really heightened people's tendency to compare themselves uh, with others. I, mean, I think teenagers tend to compare themselves anyway, but be prior to social media, it was might be comparing, looking around in the classroom, noticing who's more popular or less popular, who, you know, who's getting good marks, who looks good or who doesn't look good. But they were. Uh, comparing themselves to relatively small numbers now online, the the avenues for comparison are enormous, and and often, as as you said, often totally misleading. But they're suddenly comparing themselves with with hundreds or or, or more. Uh, and the way that social media is structured they're, they're making very unrealistic comparisons a lot of the time so the potential for angst and especially for kids perhaps who don't have a lot of um, contacts or friends on Facebook I mean the, the the starkness of those comparisons is so much greater um, today because of social media um, which makes it so much more difficult, and and for kids that are sociable, that are well-connected, that have a good bunch of friends, um, I'm sure social media works well most of the time, but for kids that are already feeling a bit like outsiders and a bit isolated and who don't have friends, social media reminds them that they are outsiders and that other people are having a much better life than they are, and I think for those kids in particular, social media is, I think, um, harmful and hurtful. Yes.
2: And there's also the... Um you know the element of one negative comment on on a social media post can be seen by so many people so if you post something and someone makes a critical comment then potentially you've got 300 friends or 500 friends who are seeing that particular comment and and you do find it i know with some young people that i know that that they post a photo of themselves and will get all these likes and all these i love you you're amazing but then one person might say something slightly negative and that's what they're focusing on and then it's the exposure of that so all these other people have seen this negative comment about me and they're going to think particularly negative things about how I look or what I'm doing and then of course there's the element of cyberbullying. so yes I was bullying. going to ask you about this
0: because it obviously you know the nature of social media opens you up for cheerleading as in which you know people saying we love you we like you we l- but then it also also allows for the trolling. That comes after that effect. Uh, how does CBT work in as far as helping people to deal with both cyberbullying and bullying in real life?
1: Look, I think it's it's more than CBT. I think this is really an issue that has to be taken taken up by the schools. I think there has to be absolutely zero tolerance for, for bullying and I think it needs to be a whole school's policy. Um, we can sometimes talk to uh, individuals, we can sort of challenge beliefs about or, or get Uh, kids to challenge their beliefs about other other people's views and to recognize that you know some people will uh, Some people have a need to to bully because it's You know their own insecurity or there are reasons why people behave the way they, they they do But the reality is bullying has a very aversive effect on any person even people who are Psychologically healthy if it should happen to them it is particularly aversive and harmful during those fragile years of life when we're building up our own uh, identity. And I think this is something that really has to be uh, monitored, addressed and controlled by the adults in the school environment um, that, that are able to protect them and, and sometimes parents.
0: This book seems to be not only for young people but extremely helpful to their parents as well, which is to gain a greater understanding of how they might be thinking, let alone how they could improve their thinking. Um, have you had much feedback at all?
1: Um,
2: not a lot of you, Louise? I've, I've had a fair bit <laughs> from friends <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, with, with teenagers, so I think a, a there are a few components to it. One is what we call mental health literacy. So in the book we try and talk about well, what's anxiety and what's the blues and what kind of symptoms might you see and what kind of triggers may there be. So I think it's just about being aware and understanding those concepts. And then it's just about having some tools and some strategies. So it may be that parents read about particularly unhelpful thinking patterns or, or ways to change that and can help talk to their teenagers about that. And then the other component I think is important is that parents are role modeling these things for their children, teenagers themselves. So it may be, we've got a component on problem solving. So it may be sitting down at the dinner table and, and a parent talking about something difficult that's happened at work and then saying, well, this is a problem. I've got to try and brainstorm some ideas. I could do this, this, and this. And then I think about the pros and the cons of each of those and then try and set myself a goal to perhaps try and implement one of those things. So I think the more that both teenagers are getting, understanding these strategies and and reading about them directly, but also that other people in their lives are, are role modeling these, then I think the better it is.
0: Because there are worksheets essentially within the book as well and exercises for people to follow, which is to really put into practice. How important is it to practice these behaviours?
1: It's interesting with cognitive behaviour therapy when it's used as a therapy, um, the most important predictor of good outcomes is compliance to homework. So we actually try uh, try and get people to do the homework. Look, I think reading about it is helpful. Understanding the process is helpful, but actually doing the homework, completing the exercises and thinking about how does this actually apply to me and more importantly how does this actually apply to me in this situation okay at the moment I'm feeling really upset because I've sent two text messages to my friend and she hasn't responded um, so what's going on for me I'm, I'm catastrophizing I'm jumping to negative conclusions I'm assuming that um, you know that I'm being rejected here Um you know, maybe maybe this is this is not unhelp, not helpful thinking. Um, how else can I look at it? What's the best thing that I can do, and how do I respond to this? So actually, putting into practice some of the techniques that are described in the book are the ways in which we start to internalize and and really learn some of these techniques
0: emotions are very difficult to manage at times when you're a teen and and because the world keeps changing around you and anger as you mentioned before louise for boys can be certainly very prevalent um, or antagonism or irritability but what about those people who don't want to let go of their anger because anger can be fuel as well
1: Anger is one of those really interesting emotions that people often want to hold on to. Anger feels empowering. When we feel angry, we actually feel strong and empowered. And for teenagers in particular, where often their anger is directed at, um, authority figures and it may be teachers or parents or people in positions of power, anger can sometimes be the only tool they have to, um, you know, to, to exercise some degree of power. Um, but it's true actually with a lot of emotions. People often have ambivalence about letting go of emotions. So they may, for example, feel be worrying a lot or feeling a lot of anxiety. And part of them really wants to stop feeling anxious. But another part of them actually wants to hold on to particularly the worrying because it feels protective in some way.
0: And and there is a difference between worrying and anxiety as well, isn't there?
1: Well, there is a difference. So worrying is actually a thought process where you're thinking about something bad that might happen in the future and start sort of thinking about, well, um, you know, but this could happen and this could happen and this could happen and what if this happens, Um, whereas anxiety is more um, a perception of threat. So The brain perceives that something bad will happen and there's a physical reaction. Now, often when we're worrying about something, we also tend to feel um, anxious at the same time, but not always the case. And we can be anxious without worrying and we can sometimes worry without being anxious. So they're they're not exactly the same thing.
0: Is it more difficult to sort of implement CBT with those of a particular intelligence level, like those of a higher grade intelligence, because they can almost sort of, keep themselves in that negative state because they can come up with a solution of why things may go wrong again and again and again.
1: Look, I actually think it's not about uh, intelligence. is is not the issue. It's about insight and being psychologically minded. So you have some um, kids and some adults who are much more psychologically minded, and they get it. They they sort of you know if you if you give them some basic information about how the mind works and how thoughts influence beliefs, uh, it makes absolute sense to them, and they can um, they can really start applying it. Um, and there are some people who are not very psychological. Minded and they have very low levels of self-awareness and insight, and they're the ones that may sometimes struggle with it. But I I don't think intelligence is actually an obstacle. If anything, I would say it's probably a slight advantage. Right, because you understand language. Yeah, you you get you get it pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Also, is that CBT, as we mentioned earlier, has been used with a range of populations and a range of ages. So they, you can still teach a very young child some of the basic principles of CBT in a language that they can relate to. So they might call it detective thinking and you might have little characters putting the, the thoughts you're having under a microscope and trying to find evidence around, you know, using different analogies. So it can be adapted to a whole range of populations and various issues.
0: Well, we've certainly seen in the last, well, probably the last decade or more, that neuroplasticity has become a favoured word, but certainly a science, and that the, the brain is adaptable. It continues to you know, build new pathways. Did that change psychology and the psychological, the, the approach in psychology at all?
1: um certainly we have a much better understanding of that how the brain continues to change and, and continues to change right through our adult lives we did used to think that there are you know fixed pathways and a fixed number of um, cells that would you know some of which would die off but you know no more would be regenerated so we have a much more uh, in-depth and accurate understanding of how the brain works the good news for that is that it actually tells us that if we practice something over and over again um, particularly for teenagers but also for, for even for adults, we can actually change the networks, the neural networks and pathways of um, uh, uh, of the brain, and therefore we can learn new skills and we can learn to um, to respond in different ways. And this is also true for thinking patterns. If we actually learn to think in different ways, we can actually start to, after a while, respond differently emotionally. So that that's an important an important part of, I guess, um, learning uh, CBT and learning to think in, in different ways that after a while it does become more automatic and we, we, we tend to respond um, in, in a more, um, in a less uh, distressed way to, to, to situations that would previously upset us.
2: And I think that's also the benefit of teaching kids and teenagers these strategies earlier on. So the more they're practicing, the more it gets consolidated and the more those pathways become the default, so to speak. And as we also know, with teenagers, there's a process of pruning. So the the pathways that are being used more are the ones that get consolidated and the the pathways that are being used less often fall by the wayside. So if we're teaching these strategies at this age and they're practising them and and implementing them throughout the day and and daily life, then the more likely it is that those um, strategies will be more concrete and set for them.
0: Very much like learning a musical instrument yeah, in many ways, yeah. which is you know when you see that note on on mm-hmm. the sheet music, you press this button, you you get this particular tone, and this is the result. And then you learn how to do it faster and faster and faster.
1: But notice that the the best the best results come when when people start young. So mm-hmm. kids that start <laughs> very young mm-hmm. are going to develop excellent skills and and really good skills over time. And that's true with with most things. If you oh, teach most skills, importantly languages mm-hmm. as yeah, well. So languages. But you teach skills early, and you make you make people aware of certain things early in life. It's you know it, it's more likely to consolidate and become part of their uh, the way that their mind works over time. Which is another reason
2: why this is so important to bring. Yeah, it, to, to it almost becomes it early. a default, you know, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that becomes a more healthy default way of managing something.
0: Looking at the book, there's a section on healthy living and healthy lifestyle. So the importance of diet and also getting out and active. Um, could you maybe talk through that perhaps? Just the influence that has on improving the thought processes. These
1: are probably the most basic, simple and important things that the that- that kids can do and adults actually Mm. that um, we kind of used to in the past think of the mind and the body as being two separate things and now we realize that no body is part of the mind they are completely interconnected you can't separate the two and when when we are in a distressed state emotionally physically that has significant effects on our energy on our digestion on our physical processes and the reverse is also true that if we don't look after our physical body that also has an effect on our emotional and mental state mm. so we, we know from a lot of research that has been around for a long time that physical exercise exercise is one of the most important things we can do for um, dealing with stress for um, managing mood particularly for depression but even for reducing anxiety frustration anger Um, and generally maintaining mental health. More recent research, and I'm talking about in the last five to ten years, has really started finding um, the effects of diet as being also equally important to to mental health. We know, for example, that serotonin is, is... Uh, partly produced in the stomach and the the things that we eat actually affect um, uh, serotonin levels which has a direct effect on mood. There is now a lot of uh, unequivocal research that a diet that is balanced that involves largely unprocessed food with a good variety of foods actually makes a difference to mental health as well as physical well-being.
2: And I think one of the big issues for teenagers is sleep so a lot of research is saying teenagers are one of the most chronically sleep deprived populations in the world and and understandably they've got lots of competing interests it's tempting to sit there and follow Netflix series and, and keep going till late at night but the issue around that is that that again sleep is is an important part of both physical health and mental health so really trying to to, to reflect on that and, and think about ways to encourage teenagers to get a decent night's sleep is, is important because again, you know, for all of us, if we're tired, we tend to be more irritable, we tend to find it harder to cope with things, we tend to lose focus and motivation. Mm.
0: So it's very much balance across all things, balance of the appropriate amount of sleep, the appropriate amount of good food, the good contact, good socialization. And I think I've heard you use the term um, more green, less screen.
2: So it's just the effect of being out in nature and, and um, natural sunlight, so things like the effect that that can have on your melatonin, um, being a, in a more peaceful environment, being exposed to nature can have a huge impact on, on well-being. We know that if you're sucked to a screen a lot of the time, again, the, the effects of the blue light can affect melatonin, can affect um, sleep cycles. So I think it's just, again, about finding that balance. This is your second book together.
1: Uh, well, we, the original version was called Taking Charge, and we we published that in two thousand and two thousand four, mm. um, and that was really based on the, the the groups that we were running at the time. So this uh, good thinking is actually a um, an updated and, and and significantly changed version of that book. So it was based on Taking Charge, but I think using a lot more contemporary things mm. that have that have come about. There's been a lot of changes in the in the last. Um, you know 15 years or so since we wrote our first book so this is a, a more a more advanced version and
0: so how do you break down the writing of the book itself
1: um yeah, that's that's a really good question we um so some some chapters we we both we wrote separately and then sent it to the other for for, for editing and changes and comments um and some chapters we sort of wrote jointly, so I'd often, you know, I offered to do bits and Louise offered to mm. do bits. Mm. Um, it's interesting because I've written a book by myself and, and, and now co, co-authored with Louise, and I have to say there are great advantages of working with someone else um, mm. because, you know, they can you know, pick up things that I wouldn't have thought of and, and vice versa. So you're sort of editing each other's work, which, which actually um, makes it a lot easier. Um, but also I think there are some sometimes it's a little bit harder I always felt I was you know at times when I sort of said to Louise no I'm I'm going to delete this or I don't like this or I you know I always felt a bit mean (laughs) because I I thought this is her work and I'm saying no I don't like this (laughs) and Louise Louise was always very gracious about it.
2: (laughs) Well I think because you've got the experience of having written a book before and I feel like you you know you've got the framework and, and you have that structure so you probably know well, what works well and and so what there flows. was never an
0: email that just said this must stay. <laughs>
1: is the perfect person to write a book with because she's so accommodating and fair and reasonable and um, and at times I felt a bit guilty but she, yeah she's right. she's <laughs> <laughs> she's very cognitively flexible.
2: I don't personalise it.
0: <laughs> yeah, she, she wasn't sitting there labelling herself. No, at she all. wasn't
1: labelling me. Or well, she was labelling me. I did.
2: Was was In
1: fact, I think we're both pretty adaptive thinkers, aren't we? We, you know, these days we've done
2: to practice and learn to be and uh, you know as as we were saying these the skills that you learn with cbt are things that you use for life they're not things you you, you know certain emotions or stress or anxiety don't suddenly go away they're things that i would constantly use and, and sarah does too throughout our everyday life so even in writing there'd probably be times where we yeah. have to challenge some of our thinking around that or, or problem solving or what have you yeah
1: and and the need for flexibility i think definitely yeah. when, you, when you're co-writing something is yeah. yeah it's good
0: Sarah Louise, it's, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you today and thank you so much for the book. I think it definitely, um, has a lot of value for teenagers, but also certainly for adults. There's so much more we could learn to improve our own lives on a day to day basis. So thank you for making the time to speak with me today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, James. Thank you. Thank
0: you. This has been James Ricards with Conversations with Writers, and thanks so much for listening. We can be found on Twitter at ConversationsWW and also on Facebook. We do appreciate you listening, so please leave me some feedback.